0: And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit
1: buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota,
0: let's go places.
1: Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes.
2: This week, an episode we first released the day before Halloween in 2017. Just a heads up, there's an incident of animal abuse described in the very last story by Erica Steigerwald. So without further ado, here is Scary Stories 9. <laughs>
3: Late one night, when my eyes beheld an eerie sight, for my monster from his slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise,
4: he <laughs> the
2: This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Los Straightjackets, behind me now with the theme from The Munsters, and this is our ninth Scary Stories episode. Scary Stories 9, we're calling this one... (laughs) That's right, it's the end of October when we like to feature... Our scariest stories we've heard in a while. But you know what would be horrifying for me? You know what would terrify the shit out of me? Would be if you forgot that we accept your pitches for scary stories all year round. You can always pitch us a scary story any time of year. If you go to risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, this is a perfect example. This episode today of five stories that are scary in five very different ways. And we're about to hear three of them in a row without me interrupting in between. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Kristen Ludwig. She shared her story the last time Risk was in Philadelphia. But before that, we're going to hear from Ansley Isham. She shared her story, well, in my apartment (laughs) in Harlem when I used to live there. But before that... We're going to hear from Robin Reiser. She shared this story in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. We do the show once a month there. Robin has a website at RobinReiser.com, and she co-produces a new Los Angeles story show called Historia that you should look up on Facebook at Historia Story Show. Here is Robin Reiser now with a story we call Lady in the Room.
5: everybody my story took place in the summer before my junior year of college and my parents had just moved to a brand new house in Terrytown, New York I don't know if you guys know Terrytown, New York it's where Sleepy Hollow is so we moved into this really cool mid-century sort of Frank Lloyd Wright house that had floor-to-ceiling windows, and it was deep in the woods so that you had this beautiful view everywhere. And my room was the best room in the house because it was set way, way back in the woods. And when you entered, you could just see the tops of trees just all around you. And it was so peaceful and beautiful and far away from the rest of the house. And my parents moved in, left all their stuff on the ground and just like went on vacation because they were so tired. So I got to come home and be in this new house all by myself for two weeks and I was psyched. I mean, it was like this beautiful house all to myself. And I go into my room and I put my stuff down and I sit on my bed and I sort of like breathe in the quiet house. And I get this feeling right away like I'm not alone. But, you know, it's a new house, so I just, like, shake it off. It's not a big deal. I'm sure it's just weird house stuff. And I go about my day, but every time I would enter my room, I would get this feeling again, and it, like, grew. And I never saw a ghost or something. I never heard anything. I just felt this presence every time I went in my room. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not a person who had normally just gone around being like, there's a presence. That that was not me. Like I, this had never happened to me before. And every time I went in my room, it was like, The feeling when you enter a room and there's a TV on in that room, but you don't hear the volume and you don't see the TV, but you can feel like the static electricity of the TV. It was like that. It was like a crackle, like an energy. And I could feel it in my room. And I started to get this impression in my head that it was this little older woman with white hair and she was very confused. So every time I went in, this got more and more crystallized. So I went to bed that night and I'm like lying in my bed and I'm looking at the tops of the trees waving around that I was so looking forward to And I just could not stay in that room with this lady there in the corner. Like, what are you doing? So I left and I stayed in my parents' room the rest of the time until they came home. And they got home and they were like, why are you sleeping in our room? What's going on? And I was like, well, I don't know how to tell you this, but this new house that you moved into, it's haunted. (laughs) And they were like, okay, Robin, right. Like, oh, it's haunted. So our house had been built by um, the only other family that had lived there. Their names were the Hessels and they had built the house and they were the only people that lived there. And so um, my parents started calling my ghost Mrs. Hessel. Now we didn't know anything about this family. We just knew that it was a normal family. And we didn't know if anyone had died there. We didn't know anything. But my parents started calling my ghost Mrs. Hessel. And every morning they would say, how's Mrs. Hessel? And just make fun of me for having uh, my own ghost in my room. Um, I went away, I went away after that. I went uh, about a week later, I went to Kenya on a study abroad and I got this letter from my mom and she said, it's the darndest thing, Robin, but we have all experienced some sort of feeling with Mrs. Hassel in your room. (laughs) There's a little ghost of a, just sort of batty dotty woman in your room. (laughs) And I was like, I know, I told you. So the letter continued and she said, we hired a medium And the medium came and has, the medium confirmed that indeed it was an older, confused woman who didn't know she had died, and she was wondering what we were all doing in her house. And the medium helped escort her to the other side, and she's at peace now. So rest assured. And I was like, great. So yeah, good. Our house is clean. So, uh. Cut to like six years later, I moved to Los Angeles and I um, was at a dinner party and I had no friends because that's how you move to Los Angeles with no friends. (laughs) And it's not easy, by the way, to make friends here. So I was pretty desperate to make friends. Like, so any person that I met at that time was a potential friend. Like I was on my my social activity game. (laughs) You know what I mean? I was out with the radar, the friendar. So I was at this dinner party and there was a man who was like 15 or 20 years older than me and he starts asking me where I'm from and I said, oh, Tarrytown, New York. And he says, no way, my wife is from Tarrytown. She's at home right now with a baby. Let's call her. And I was like, okay, totally awkward and weird, but okay, I want friends, so yeah, let's call her. So he calls his wife, and uh, she says, oh, you're from Terrytown." She was also thought it was really weird. She's like, oh, you're from Terrytown. My husband's making you talk to me. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> yeah. She's like, great, we're in Terrytown?" And I was like, oh, up Cobb. And she's like, oh, that's so funny. Me too, I grew up up Cobb. And I was like, oh, that's great. She said, which road up Cobb? And I said, Oak. And she said, no, that's where I grew up on Oak. And I said, that's crazy. She said, which house? And I said, 15. And she said, no way, my dad built that house. And I was like, no way. (laughs) (laughs) That's so crazy. What's your maiden name, by the way? And she was like, it's Hessel. Your parents bought my parents' house, that's so, what a small world. And I'm like, yeah, what a small world. And I hear this voice in my head, and it's like, you gotta tell her about her mother. And I was like, fuck no, I'm not gonna tell her about her mother. I wanna make friends. Weird quiet voice in my head. I'm not listening to you So we keep talking and she's like which room is your room and I'm like, oh, it's the one in the back in the woods And she's like that was my room Isn't it the best room in the house? And I was like, yes, it's the best room. She's like, you know What's so funny is my mom loved that room She used to take naps there every day. She called it her sanctuary and I was like, oh, like just feeling like cold all the way down my body. And the, this voice was like, you know, you gotta tell her about her mom. And I was like, shut up, voice. They're gonna think I'm crazy and no one's gonna wanna be friends with me at this party. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And the next thing I know coming out of my mouth without my controlling it is the words, your mom is okay now. What? Shut up. No, don't say that. And she goes, what? Because of course she does. And I was like, nothing. Nothing nothing sorry (coughs) chicken bone she was like what did you say about my mom and I was like no nothing and she said you know my mom died ten years ago and I was like oh god sorry I'm sorry sorry and she's like what did you say about her say it again and I was like your mom when we first moved in your mom was still kind of around, oh God. And we got a medium, shit. And the medium helped her transition and now she's at peace. Nothing on the other end of the line. Of course, cause she's calling the cops, I'm sure. <laughs> I just hear this like breathing on the other end. And then I'm like, fuck, fuck, fuck. And then the breathing gets faster and I realize she's crying. It's sobbing, it's not breathing. And I'm like, what kind of a dick am I? Like, I told this woman who just had it, she's home with her baby and I dredged up like, oh, your dead mother's at our house, but we got an exorcist, it's fine. <laughs> Robin, you're never going to make any friends in Los Angeles. That's just, this is it. This is it. So I said, "I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have told you that. I'm so sorry. I'm such an idiot. Please forgive me. I'm not crazy. I don't go around saying these things. And she was like, you don't understand. You don't understand. My mother died of Alzheimer's. And I have been worried the last 10 years that she didn't know that she died and you telling me that has resolved that for me so thank you thank you for telling me that story and i was like oh fuck, i might have made a friend So we got off the phone and I couldn't believe that I had said the words, that they were just what she needed to hear, that this had happened. I still to this day can't believe I told her and that we had this like bond, you know? I I do have to say that that couple never ever called me (laughs) ever again. And I will also say that Mrs. Hessel was only the very first ghost of other ghosts that I have encountered since then. My house right now that I live in is haunted. Sorry, I'm just apologizing to my husband because he probably doesn't know that. (laughs) (coughs) But that is a story for another time. Thank you very much.
3: Why is it when the night comes, the whole world seems spooky, scary, horrible, and frightening? Is it because it's dark? Or is it because there's something out there? If you want to find out, come with me. Do you know that sound? I don't. Is that someone coming, or... Now that's not very scary, is it?
4: Or is it?
6: It was the summer, I was 13 years old, living with my mom at the time in this small old house in the back of the woods in rural Tennessee. I was spending my summer in front of the television with nothing much to do. And one night I had fallen asleep in front of the TV in the living room and I woke up to screaming. (laughs) I sat straight up and I turned around and I saw my mother. She was screaming at the top of her lungs at this figure in our front door. Get the fuck out, leave! I was terrified because in her hands, she had a gun. I managed to find my voice trapped in the back of my throat and ask what's going on she looked at me and kind of registered for the first time that i was there she said ansley there is a man at our front door there is a man at our back door and there are two men downstairs in the basement i'd never seen my mom that scared in my life she's normally a very strong level-headed woman but we were in danger it was clear before i could get too hysterical she looked at me and she said don't worry I don't think they're here to hurt us I just think they're here to scare us I I must have pissed someone off I didn't have a lot of time to process through what four men wanted to do to two vulnerable women in the back of the woods so I immediately decided to go to the corner of the living room and I tuck my knees in against my chest and I watched as my mother frantically paced back and forth checking windows and doors looking for other people in the house because we're in the south I pray to Jesus that we're going to get through the night as I'm sitting there my heart stops and my blood runs cold when I hear this pounding at our front door But to my relief, it wasn't the voice of the murderers or the rapists that I thought were outside, but it was the sound of a police officer saying, open up. My mother must have called the cops while I was sleeping, and as she stashes the weapon and lets in these two cops and these two good old boys walk in, one's chubby, stout, and the other one's tall and lanky. I don't know why they pair them like that, but they tend to and in their thick southern drawl, they ask us what has been going on all night. My mother explains to them that there's been men inside and outside the house and they've been harassing us all night. She's just trying to watch out for her daughter and I'm washed with relief because I feel like we're finally safe, that these two guys are gonna catch the bad guys and we're gonna be safe, everything's gonna be all right. The skinny one goes downstairs and looks in the basement. Five minutes pass, and he comes up, and he says he doesn't see anybody. There's no one there. He goes outside and looks around the bushes, too, and once again, he comes up, and he says, Ladies, I'm sorry. There's no one here. They must have run off. I couldn't imagine where these men were, and I didn't trust that they were fully gone, and I don't think my mom did either. So when the cops left... She quickly locked the front door and looked at me and said, I'm going to sit in the hallway with my back against the basement door so I can have a good view of the front and the back door. I need you to go keep lookout in my room. I do as she says and I, I go to the back of the house and I look out her back window and I'm just waiting to see anybody, to see these men who have been harassing us all night and kind of running through the possibilities of what happened here. It wasn't the first time that my mother had upset people, but this had escalated to something that felt dangerous and scary. I didn't know if we were gonna make it through the night unscathed, and my heart stops at any movement I see in the bushes. Any sight or sound I saw outside was a possible threat to us. We sat like that for hours and slowly the sun was about to come up and I hear my mother's footsteps heading back to her bedroom. And as she's going in, I close the door behind her and I feel this pressure on the other side and I slam it shut and I force my back up against it and I scream, they're in the house and she looks at me terrified and begins calling the cops. And. As I have my back up against the door, a door that I've broken into a million times with a butter knife and knew how easily it was to get on the other side, I thought about how much danger we were really in. In this moment, everything goes black. I I can't really remember what happens from the point that my mother calls the cops and I'm up against the door to the moment when finally the cops arrive at our house. Eventually, the cops do arrive, two different cops this time. They listen to our story once again, and the sun is finally up. We tell them that all night, these men have been inside and outside of our house, and they've been harassing us and wanting to either terrify us or hurt us. And as we're talking to the cops, I see them nodding and listening, but it didn't seem like they were really taking what my mother was saying very seriously. And as they're about to leave, one of the cops pulls me outside of earshot of my mother and looked at me and asked me a question I'll never forget. He goes, now, is your mother on drugs? And I looked at him with such disdain and anger because these men were supposed to be here to save us and help us, and they were questioning us. This wasn't our fault. We were the victims here. I, of course, look at him and say, no, what's wrong with you? No. He nods his head and realizes he's upset me. And he goes, okay. And they walk away and they get in their car and leave. After the cops leave, it's around 9 o'clock in the morning. My mother and I are both recovering from the night before. She cracks open a smear off ice and heads to the back porch to sit and I am watching her and she's staring out at the woods and she's starting to look concerned and she calls me over and she goes can you come here can you see this and I'm looking and I'm searching for something and I say what no I I don't see anything and and then she's Starting to get a little exasperated, she is pointing to the trees and she's saying, do you see those men in military uniforms propelling from the trees? They're doing some kind of training. And I'm starting to get concerned because I can't see what she wants me to see. I'm saying, I'm sorry, Mom, I don't know. I don't see them there the afternoon passes and she's still fixated on these men in the woods but i go inside and a few hours later i hear gunshots and i run outside because they're coming from the backyard and i see my mother there with a gun in her hands and she's screaming at the woods again and i run up to her and i'm yelling mom mom what's going on what's the matter and she's pointing at the woods and she's saying you don't see that there are kids in Halloween costumes waving leaves at me they're making fun of me and I'm like mom there's no one there there's no one here and in that moment it washes over at me that dear God my mother is having a mental breakdown and that the last 24 hours was probably not reality but part of this delusion and that I am the only one there to take care of her. My suspicions are completely validated when the sun is going down and my mother begins to go into the same pattern of behavior from the night before. There's men at the door, she's calling the cops, and this continues like clockwork every time the sun goes down for the entirety of that summer to the point where I'm exhausted and drained and so tired of having to take care of my mother and go into these delusions with her that one night as the sun is going down, I am so angry. I bust open the front door, and I run out into the yard, and I can see her face as she's terrified for me and I just stretch out my arms and I yell, there's no one fucking here, you're fucking insane. In that moment, I give up. I don't have the energy to fight my mother's demons with her and I begin to resent my mother for forcing me to be an adult and take care of her when I wasn't ready and I still needed her to take care and be an adult for me since that point I kept thinking back to what the cop asked me and kind of put the pieces together what my mother was battling wasn't men outside but her addiction to crack and meth and kind of an assortment of narcotics it really took a toll on her mental capacity and her ability to take care of me and I had to learn how to take care of myself. Years later, after processing through that summer, I was able to kind of understand how deeply I went into the delusion with my mother, and how I was able to see that figure in our front door and feel that pressure on the other side as I'm trying to shut her bedroom door. And how powerful the mind truly is when it's under an intense amount of terror and anxiety over the years i've struggled with my own coping with how difficult life can be and my own reliance on addiction and through that i was able to forgive my mother and see her as not this monster who wrecked my life, but this person who was clearly struggling with her own demons and finding ways to numb how difficult life can be. In recent years, she's gotten better and she's tried her damnedest to be there for me and I've been able to see her as more of a person with flaws and someone that is worthy of forgiveness and empathy. And I've more of an understanding of how hard life can be. And through that, I see her as someone who is worthy of love and forgiveness and empathy, just as we all are.
1: Trick or treat, give
5: me something good to eat. I got a candy bar. I got a popcorn ball. I
7: got a quarter. I got a rock.
0: Trick or treat, trick or treat, give me something sweet to eat. I got five pieces of candy. Hey, I got a package of gum. I got a rock. I got three cookies.
4: I got a chocolate bar. I got a fudge bar. I got a pack of gum.
1: I got a rock.
0: <laughs> this is way different than telling stories in my shower. <laughs> so, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my middle school experience. So middle school is such an important time in our lives. It's a period of self-discovery. It's a myriad of trial and error in different friendships and relationships. And it's a a time when you hear a lot of your core life lessons. And for me, you can sum that up all in one sentence, which would be, please, like me, I so want to be cool. (laughs) But after three so-so years of climbing and clawing my way up to the top, I had finally made it. Damn it, I was popular, finally! I had a great group of friends and it was amazing. Now one of the commonalities that all the in crowd had shared at our school was that we all had an in with the hall monitors. Actually, let me rephrase, we all had an in with one of our hall monitors. See, our hall monitors were the end-all, be-all of hall monitor rules and regulations and authority. And they, like, really took that seriously. They were the epitome of the abuse of power. And as a matter of fact, back in the day, we had a name for them, and it was assholes. So, but they were all like that, except for one. And that one was Mr. Francois. See, Mr. Francois would give all us cool kids high fives, he'd tell us yo mama jokes, and he'd have all of the 8th grade gossip, he'd have some of the 8th grade gossip before I have it. He'd catch us in the hallway and say, hey, you guys hear what happened to so and so? And we'd say, what? Mr. Francois, are you serious? But one of the other things that was so cool about him was that he was always willing to lend an ear and help us get through some of the heavy in middle school. Sometimes you're having problems with your parents, with your friends, with your teachers. He would sit and listen. And that was really nothing short of fantastic. He was always there for us in that regard but he also had another side. And that other side quickly became our favorite side because Mr. Francois had subscribed to the don't get caught methodology of hall monitoring. So if we were wandering the halls without a pass or were skipping out on math class or maybe smoking in the bathroom, he'd kindly turn the other way. (laughs) And he was definitely cool to have around in that regard. Now, one afternoon in May, toward the end of my eighth grade year, A bunch of us are hanging out after school in the auditorium. And my dad was a computer networking guy for the district, so it wouldn't be unheard of for me to hang out for an hour or so until he finished doing what he had to do. So one afternoon, a bunch of us are in the auditorium, and we're hanging out, and my friends keep getting picked up one by one by one, until it was just me, and I was by myself. So here's the thing about my attention span. I don't have one so it didn't take long for me to get up and start wandering around the halls now our auditorium led out into the middle of the longest hallway of the entire school it's 20 miles this way 20 miles that way and i start heading off to the left to go toward the cafeteria and i hear this loud barreling voice behind me and it says what you up to little miss now mr francois used to mess with us to make us think that we were in trouble So I knew damn well it was him behind me, and I said, What's up, Mr. Francois? And he starts laughing and he says, Where are you off to? And I said, I'm going to the cafeteria to go get a drink. And he says, Hold up, hold up. I'm going to hook you up. So I'm thinking, Well, I don't have to spend $1.25 on my fruitopia. I just won the day. (laughs) But here's where my attention span perks up again. Because Mr. Francois is all the way on the other freaking side of the building, and he walks in these slow, steady strides, like clearly indicating that he does not give a shit how long it takes him to get anywhere. So I'm standing around, and it's finally my fidgets get the best of me, and I start heading off to the cafeteria, and he says, Where are you going? I said, Uh, cafeteria? And he says, No, 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 no. That door is locked gotta go in the back so I stand and I wait and I wait and I stand and finally he makes it up to where I'm standing and we start heading back to the loading dock in the back cafeteria kitchen area now he pops open the door of the back kitchen area now this is the the behind-the-counter area the forbidden to students area where there's always hustle and bustle and pots and pans and trays of shitty food being served but today It's quiet. It's dead quiet. So I'm standing there just appreciating the spectacle of what's so contrary to what I'm used to seeing every day. And I get a nudge on my shoulder, but a nudge so much so that I stumble forward and I turn around almost surprised. And Mr. Francois goes, you better go in there and get your drink. We ain't getting busted in here. Well, I mean, he's right. I'm not getting busted in here. He's not getting busted in here. It's just asking for trouble. So I go over to the juice machine. I grab a cup, get my drink, and I head back to the door where Mr. Francois is standing guard. Now, a word about Mr. Francois. That word is enormous. Mr. Francois stood over six feet tall, and by my estimation, had to have easily been over 300 pounds. And the entirety of the door frame was taken up by his immense body size. And he just wasn't moving. So, somewhat awkwardly, I say to him, well, um, uh, thanks. thanks for the drink. And he doesn't say anything. He just stares at me. And I tell you, as I stare back, the usual laughing, happy, jovial Mr. Francois is not looking back. His usual cheery face is replaced with this cold, hard, emotionless gaze, and I start to get nervous, and I very quickly realize there's no other way out of this cafeteria kitchen. So I take a step back, and I start looking around, and as I'm locked in his eyes in this very moment, I just feel powerless. I look around and I start to panic and he must have sensed my panic because it was almost as if he was woken out of a trance and the emotion starts coming back to his face and he made a sound that sounded like this, huh, and he steps back, indicating that he was going to let me through, but he only left me a few inches so I had to squeeze and wiggle in between the door frame and his giant belly. And as I'm so close to him, I smell this rotting, putrid, disgusting odor. And it immediately gets stuck in my throat and turns my stomach. And I push my way out. And finally, after what seems like an eternity, I'm freed. And I grab my backpack and I say, thanks for the drink, Mr. Francois. And I went down to the computer lab to go find my dad. Now the next day at school, I went and reported back to my friends this weird encounter that I had with Mr. Francois and I said, listen, Mr. Francois said he was going to get me this drink and he let me in this back kitchen area but he kind of like held me there and they said, what? You were in that back kitchen area? That's so cool. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, no. See, he like held me in that room like he wouldn't let me out and it just and they're like, whoa, what was it like back there? And I'm like, no. You guys are not, you're not, he, they, like, he just had this weird demeanor, like, and he held me in that back room, and I felt so nervous. Like, what about, what about that? What do you think of that? And they didn't even regard it. They said, dude, that's Mr. Francois. What is Mr. Francois going to do to you? I'm um, Start thinking about it, and I'm like, yeah. You know what, you're right. It's Mr. Francois He's probably being a weirdo like he always is. You know, maybe maybe he was having a bad day. Maybe he was having an off day. Maybe he was a big freaking guy and had to walk all the way down that hallway. What do I know? So after a while, I kind of succumbed to the peer pressure and I went along with their opinion. You're right. Nothing happened. So they didn't regard it. So I didn't regard it. When we finished off our middle school year, pretty much uneventfully, we almost immediately forgot about that little encounter that we had. Now, what do the cool kids do when they're about to enter their freshman year of high school? They join the marching band, of course. (laughs) So that's what I did. And of course, that made for some summer practices and the inevitable band camp, yeah. So for any of you who don't know what band camp is, band camp is where you learn your routine for the year. So you learn your music and your field positions. I was on the color guard, so we were learning our flag work, our rifle work, and our dance choreography. And that was nine to five in the hot sun on Monday, nine to five in the hot sun on Tuesday. But on Wednesday, Wednesday, September 2nd, 1998, was a day of band camp that I will never forget. See, when we started arriving at band camp, we were getting our materials and things that we needed together for the day, and we started to notice that there's a lot of police activity going on. There's a lot of emergency vehicles, there's a helicopter, and there's a news van. A news van? (sighs) Something huge is happening in our town right now, and we were so curious, and we were so excited that we couldn't even focus. So... Now is for a moment that I'm just going to stop, and I'm just going to read you something that I found online. Just a quick snippet from Wikipedia. And it goes like this. Kendall Francois, an American serial killer from Poughkeepsie, New York, convicted of killing eight women from 1996 to 1998. What? A serial killer? My entire middle school career? See, there was the Im- abundance of emergency vehicles and everything that day because the night before, Mr. Francois was assaulting and raping a girl in his car, and she got away. She got away and ran screaming down the, down the street to a convenience store where they called the police. And they immediately picked up Mr. Francois. And instead of this interrogation being about this assault that happened, he started to confess to murder after murder after murder. (laughs) So when we saw all these emergency vehicles and things like that, that morning, they had obtained a search warrant. And what they found on his property was nothing short of horrific, they found skulls in a kiddie pool, they found bodies with evidence of necrophilia, they found a basin full of just unrecognizable body parts. These investigators had gone through several pairs of boots because they were walking through the sludge of rotting human corpses. How could this be? How could this be? This was our buddy, this was our friend, this was our confidant. I couldn't even put it together, and as more and more details of these disgusting and heinous crimes were coming up, I'm immediately back in that cafeteria kitchen, and the gears start grinding, and I'm thinking, what could have happened? What could have happened to me? Now, Mr. Francois has since died. He died in prison, and but he's now known as being one of the most remorseless serial killers in our history. He's now known for saying that the only thing he did wrong was get caught. He said that if that girl did not get away, he could have gone on and on and on, and nobody could have found a thing. So as you can imagine, This is a lot to take in for a 13-year-old, but even as a 32-year-old adult, I still have such a hard time differentiating the person that I knew, the sweet, happy, joking Mr. Francois, versus this other man this cold blooded serial killer who strangled women, who strangled women and held a woman down with, by her neck with a boot because he was so exhausted and this woman just wouldn't die. Or the one that he confessed to that he held her underwater in his own bathtub until her legs stopped twitching. This is the same man who talked us through our middle school issues. Now, as I said in the beginning, middle school is one of the times that you learn a lot of your early life lessons. And I'll tell you that my biggest takeaway from middle school is to definitely think twice before someone offers to buy me a drink. Thank you.
2: This is Risk. This is the yeah, yeah, yeahs behind me now. And we just heard from Kristen Ludwig. Now, Kristen had never shared a story on stage before. She was a fan of Risk who reached out to us when we were doing our show in Philly last. That was many months ago. But, man, she was just phenomenal. Before that, we heard an interstitial by Jeff Barr, our episode editor, called Gotta Rock. I think someone should investigate. Did the adults in Charlie Brown's neighborhood conspire before trick-or-treat time to give Charlie only rocks? I mean, it's pretty unsettling when you think about it. Now, before that, we heard from another newcomer, Ansley Isham. She told that remarkable story she and her mother thinking they were under siege in their house. And there was some great sound design and music work done on that particular radio story by our editor, John LaSala. Great work from John. Before that, we heard an interstitial from JJ Evans, who's a fan of the show. Remember, if you're ever interested in doing these audio interstitials, these sound collages, or little Risk theme songs, you can always write to me at Kevin at Risk Show.com. Now we're going to jump right back into it. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Erica Steherwald. Man, she flew to me to record this story you're going to hear in a little bit. I said, well, we could do it over Skype. She said, no, 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 no. I want to be there with you in your room and really recording it face to face. So she flew to me. (laughs) I was so amazed. But before Erica, we're going to hear something really rather special. We've only done this twice before in the history of Risk. This is a story that was recorded live at a risk show at Littlefield in Brooklyn in front of an audience but we added music and sound design so you will hear the audience and the music and the sound design our editor John Lasala worked on that and you know our our episode editor Jeff Barr works on everything now the storyteller here is a truly fascinating guy Burke Hefner does photography and videography you can find him on instagram at burke hefner that's b-u-r-k-e h-e-f-f-n-e-r and so without further ado here is burke hefner with a story we call below zero
8: Mushers will sometimes mix, they'll breed their huskies with wolves because a husky that has a little bit of wolf in it makes a really, really strong sled dog. But you have to be very careful because they will push themselves so hard. They're such dedicated runners that if you don't watch out, they will actually run themselves to death. Our plan was very simple. We had three drivers. We had two pickup trucks. If we drove in one truck for four hours, we switched to the next truck for four hours, and then we slept in the back in the camper for four hours, the three of us could drive nonstop, two drivers at the wheel, one person sleeping at all times, and we could make it to our destination in 48 hours. We were in Missoula, Montana. Our destination was 2,500 miles north in Alaska, and we left on the evening of January 7th. It was the dead of winter. Of the crew, our strongest was Cove. He was a real Alaskan. He was born and bred, raised there his whole life. He lived in a little village called North Pole that was just outside of Fairbanks, Alaska. Drove a big old Dodge truck, you know, V8 four wheel drive. He was definitely our strongest. And if it could break, Cove could fix it. I fell somewhere in the middle. I spent a lot of my life in Alaska, but the past several years I'd been in Montana in the lower 48, so I'd kind of gotten soft. You know, I used to be a firefighter, but now, like, my winter gear... It wasn't Alaska gear anymore. My winter gear was was like an evening of sledding, you know? <laughs> and third was Mark, skinnier and paler than I am. He was an amazing driver. He used to drive all night, but unless it came down to, like, really obscure music trivia or... Mathematics. He was not going to be the guy to get us out of a pinch. I had one advantage over the other two, is that I was the only person that had driven the Alcan before, the Alaska-Canada highway. But I had driven it in the summer. And as it turns out, winter was a, a very, very different experience. In summer, it's like, it's RVs and motorcycles and vans, and their are little, like, homemade signs at the side of the road for local goods. And uh, the gas stations all sell T-shirts for... Towns that are, like, named after the mile marker on the Alaska Highway, because they're only claimed anything. In winter, all of that kind of falls away. And when we left, it was quite warm. It was barely below freezing in Missoula, but as soon as we started out, temperature started to drop. And by the time we hit Alberta and we were rolling over like sage sagescape forever, it started to snow. The further north we pressed, the more it snowed, the more the temperature dropped. When people hear you're from Alaska, they ask you what it's like, and I always try to explain, and I feel like I always kind of fail, and the thing that I can't explain very well about Alaska is how, it's how vast it is. It's the scale of how big that world is and how small the imprint of humanity is on it. The legacy of mankind just gets smaller and smaller. The further you go north, the cities get smaller and smaller, until they're not cities, they're towns, and then they're not even towns. They're like two roads cross and it gets a name. And then even that goes away, and eventually even the asphalt surrenders. There's one road that goes to Alaska, and this part of it is dirt. It's a two-lane dirt thread. And in winter, you're the only person on it. And beyond it is the Northern Rockies. It's 80 million years old, and it's the backbone of the continent. And if you get far enough into it, it's like you can almost feel what that timeline means. And it's humbling, and it's awesome, and it's terrifically isolating. I really like that loneliness. I, I waste so much of my life like worrying about like what I'm going to do, and what I mean, and what I'm going to accomplish. When you get out there, all of that just kind of falls away. Actually, it's so lonely up there, they say that uh, you're required by law to pick up hitchhikers in northern Canada. The other thing that changes between summer driving and winter driving is that the daylight goes away. Summer, it's like open till midnight, the sun's up at 6 in the morning. By winter, the gas stations that we were finding were, they were opening at maybe 11, and they were closing at sunset, which is 3.30 in the afternoon. Every mile that we pressed north, it just got colder. We stopped at a mini-mart in Watson Lake, and we tried to do a little bit of repair, and I had to take my gloves off to do it, and I was trying to thread this really small nut. Within a couple of minutes, my knuckles seized up. It was too cold for me to actually close my hands anymore, and I couldn't actually feel whether the nut and the bolt were even in my hands. I had no sensation it. The last radio report we'd heard had said that the temperature had dropped to minus 43 degrees, adding the wind chill into it, That drive was about negative 75 degrees. When you stepped from the truck, the wind would rip the heat from your body. About two days into the trip, we reached a gas station early in the morning. And this gas station didn't open until noon, which would mean we'd lose four hours if we just waited around for it to open up. But we decided to press on. We charged up another 100 miles or something. There was another dot on the map. We pressed on, and a couple of hours later, we came to the next gas station. This gas station was also closed, but it was not closed for the night. This gas station was closed for the season. Our choice was to turn around, to try and go back to the gas station that we had left earlier. If we could reach it after dark, it'd be closed. So we'd have to spend the night there in the parking lot and we'd have to spend the night there with the engines running if we let the engines get cold they would never start again and our other choice was to press on to Phoenix River and I was pretty sure that I remembered Phoenix River having a gas station Cove and Mark had never driven it so they had no voice in it the decision was mine and I decided that we should press on and we drove for another hour or two of daylight and the sun went down and we into the night and it got colder. Our gas rocked down, quarter, eighth of a tank. I had a Chevy S10, you know, on a like two wheel drive with the big boxy camper on it. But it was one of those ones where the gas gauge kind of rocks with the gas in the tank. And it got to the point when we go around a turn, the needle would rock all the way down until it was resting on the pin below empty. And you just watch it until you straightened out again and it would. Creep back up. And we stopped and we took our spare gas cans out and we poured our spare gas into the tanks and we kept going. Around every bend, you were just like waiting for some sign of Phoenix River. And it seemed like forever, but that sign came. We were coming around a bend and there was a little sign and there was a little turnout at the side of the road and there was a couple of picnic benches buried in snow. And then the road curved away and that was the end of Phoenix River. There was no town, there was no intersection, there was no gas station because Phoenix River was a campground. There wasn't even a shed to shelter in at Phoenix River. It was a dot at the side of the road. We pulled the trucks over. We had two trucks on empty. There was no chance of reaching a next town, wherever that might have been. It was pitch black, Alaska night black. No moon, no oncoming headlights. It was so cold that even the semi-trucks had given up the road hours and hours ago. The whole drive at that point had been like this. The game was like, were we going to make it? We're going to make it to Phoenix River? Would it be around the bend? Would the gas hold out? And when we pulled over and I stepped out of the car and out of like this little heated bubble, it was the first time that I actually asked what not making it means there'd be no starting a fire. I mean, over the berm of the road, it was six feet of snow covering everything. I remember thinking, if we tore the foam and the rubber out of the seats, I wonder if we could get them to burn. We decided at that point, the only thing left to do was to siphon the gas out of the big truck. We'd pour it all into my little truck that got better mileage. The three of us could try and pile in there. We'd take the empty gas cans. We'd try and press ahead, reach a gas station, fuel up, fill up the tanks, and come back for the dodge. I went back to wake up Mark. It was his sleeping shift. He was in the little camper in the back. I opened the door. We had two sleeping bags and a couple of wool blankets, and he'd pulled all of them over him completely, his face and everything, and he just let a, a little teeny breathe hole. His breath was rising out of this little hole. His white breath rose up and it got about halfway between the top and the bottom of the camper and it flattened out and there was just this white undulating blanket of breath floating in the middle of the camper and when I opened the door the breath poured out of the truck and down the bumper and he woke up shaking wildly and started pulling on his winter clothes and Cove and I went and we got the plastic tube and we started shoving the tube down into the dodge to siphon the gas out and we were taking turns sucking the gas up through the tube to get it started. When gasoline hits your mouth at any time, it's bad. When gasoline that is 43 degrees below zero hits your mouth, it is a searing, burning pain. It's taking layers of flesh off of the inside of your mouth and we'd fill our mouths with the gasoline and we'd spit and we'd hold the little tube over the gas cans and it would start to gurgle and then the gas would flow back into the tank. We couldn't get a seal there wasn't enough gas in the tank to get a clean seal so we had to try again and again and we're taking turns filling our mouths with this gasoline and I'm starting to process what it means to be at the side of the road in Canada and The law about picking up hitchhikers is because if you're at the side of the road in the middle of the night in Canada, something is really wrong. This is a place where people die for making really small mistakes, for overestimating themselves, for underestimating the world that they're inside. I was watching Cove suck searing freezing gasoline in his mouth and retching and hacking and pouring the tank and sucking it again mark finally came out from the back of the truck and his winter gear is worse than mine and he just stood there shaking silently and watching us because there was nothing else that he could do and the fear that i'd been hiding really really well transitioned into just an awareness of responsibility because i was the one who put us there we could have stayed at the gas station for three hours and fueled up. And I should add that this 48-hour goal meant nothing. It was a number that we'd picked because we wanted to get there as fast as we could. We would no reason to keep pressing on. I'm watching one of my friends gag as he's burning the flesh up the inside of the mouth and the other one shaking. And I look up, and at what must be the horizon that I can't see because it's pitch black, I think I see a little glow, and then that little glow disappears. And then a few moments later, it comes back again, but it's a little bit, just a little bit bigger. In true dark, where there are no oncoming headlamps and there are no streetlights in all the way, dark, dark, in a snowstorm, headlights will illuminate all of that snow in front of them. Way before you see the headlights, you see this orb of light someone was coming it would get bigger and it would disappear into some valley and it would come up again brighter than it was before and it was getting brighter and brighter and it was a semi first of all no one else would be on the road but also it was so bright by the time it got to us and it finally comes wheeling around the bend it's like angels aglow are fucking coming to save us and we're waving our empty gas cans, and we're like in this elated moment, and it's finally pulling up to us, and it rolls right past. It doesn't slow down. It's sauce. There's nothing else to see but us with our gas cans at the side of the road. I had stayed very calm. I was very scared, but I had stayed very calm, and a lot of that is that I was kind of leaning on Cobes competence, knowing that he would figure out something that would get us through, I think in the same way that Mark was leaning on mine when that truck rolled past us, Cove lost it. he started screaming and yelling, and he had his gas cans in hand and he started chasing after the semi truck into the darkness that he could not possibly catch I mean it was going thirty five miles an hour in the middle of a snowstorm, but still. There was no hope and if it ignored us at the front of the road there's no way it's going to see us in our rearview mirror because you know the semis kick up this huge cloud of turbulence and snow behind it and he just started running and screaming into this cloud i didn't know what to do so i started chasing after him after a few hundred yards the truck disappeared and cove stopped running and i caught up with him and when the cloud settled i could see Another little glow, but this one wasn't moving and it wasn't the truck. Phoenix River is, as the name would imply, built on a river. First there's the campground and then the road curves away following the bend of the river and the river bends all the way around and eventually it comes back almost to the same spot. And when it curves back around, there's the Phoenix River gas station. And the glow is its sign because it was open. That hundred yards that we ran brought the gas station into sight. I don't know how a husky with a little bit of wolf blood could run itself to death without just backing off a little, but I don't know why we didn't stop and wait for three hours to get gas in a station we knew was open. What I do know is that I have never felt more alive than I did walking up to that gas station.
9: He has subscriptions to those magazines. He never waves when he goes by. He's hiding something from the rest of us. He's all to himself. I think I know why. And what's that sound from underneath the door? He's pounding
4: nails into a hardwood floor. I swear to God I heard someone
9: moaning low. I keep seeing the blue light of a TV show. He has a router and a table saw. And you won't believe what Mr. Stitches saw. There's poison underneath the sink, of course. But there's also enough formaldehyde to choke a horse building in there. What the hell is he building in there? He has no friends, but he gets a lot of mail. I'll bet he spent a little time in jail. I heard he was up on the roof last night signaling with a flashlight. And what's that tune he's always whistling? i to know.
10: I grew up in a family with a plethora of psychiatric and mental health issues anything from depression bipolar anxiety and hoarding disorder to paranoid schizophrenia and substance abuse all that chaos and all those imbalances and illnesses were normal to me in particular my uncle stands out to me he had paranoid schizophrenia I remember him calling our house when I was in fourth grade and leaving this voicemail, and he was so angry. He's like, You fucking pussies, I'm gonna kill all of you. He was saying that because God told him to. You know, this is a guy that at Christmas time was like, I love you, you all are so great. And it was just like a different person. I remember my dad sleeping downstairs with a baseball bat because, you know, they called the police. And they weren't willing to help, and we just didn't know what else to do. But I wasn't scared. Like, there was this deep intuition inside me that was like, he's just sick, and he just needs help. Sometimes, you know, it was uncomfortable. I remember one time being in middle school, and my best friend Anna and I were walking down the sidewalk, and I see him, and I grab her and I said, Stop. We get behind this bush, and I didn't want him to see me. I remember him walking and talking to somebody in full-fledged conversation, his arms flailing. He had full eye contact with this person. The problem was there was nobody there. And I also remember another time reading the paper, he had burnt down a church because God told him to. I always felt so bad for my family members who could never fully get help. But when they did get help and when they did get better, it was through psychiatric intervention. So I saw that as the answer. So when I got into college and became a nurse, I was immediately drawn to psychiatric nursing. I remember walking into my first psych hospital in college, and I walked in with my friends, and it's this Gray square sterile box of a room with fluorescent lighting. There's nothing anywhere anybody can hurt themselves with. And I see these people walking around with their faces down, mumbling to themselves. I see some people who are so depressed, they're just staring off into the wall, they can't even talk to anybody. And my friends look scared shitless. And I just remember standing there being like, cool. And I remember thinking to myself, I think this is what I'm going to do. When I finally did graduate and got my first job, I remember going to work feeling confident. I felt comfortable. There was a familiarity to it that I could handle, and it didn't scare me. I remember seeing patients in their worst and getting better because of psychiatric intervention. For example, one time I had this 70-year-old man, and he was somebody's father. He's somebody's grandfather, and he is out of his mind. And he was known from going from 0 to 100 like that. And one day he's like, "Hey, Miss." And I said, "Yeah." And he's like, "Come over here. I got something to show you." I'm like, "All right." And the thing was, I felt comfortable with it because he had this bright look in his eyes. He was relaxed. He had like this bright smile on his face. So I felt like, "Okay, this is safe." He's like, "I want to I want to show you my treasures. I want to show you my treasures." And I'm like, Ooh, "Okay, he's got treasures." Like, you're only allowed so many things in a psych hospital, so I can't even imagine like what this could possibly be. I'm like, all right, Thomas, you show me your treasures. So he's like, all right, all right, all right. So he unfolds this Kleenex. And in it are five of the rustiest, biggest nails you've ever seen. And I'm like, oh, shit. Because that might not sound like a big deal to you. But when you're in a double-locked psychiatric hospital, that's a big fucking deal. Somebody could get seriously hurt. So I asked him, I said, Thomas, can I please have those because they're not allowed on the unit and I just need to have them. His eyes turn from ecstatic to erratic. His smile turns to gritting teeth and he grabs both my wrists as hard as he can. And he's like, bitch, if you fucking take my nails, I will cut your hands off. He is grabbing my hands so tight that they're turning white. I stay calm. I don't look him directly in the eye, but I say, Thomas, can you please let go of my hands? I need to go and I'll leave you alone. And he let me go and he's like, you fucking ass white cunt. So he unfortunately against his will received a shot in his buttocks of a strong antipsychotic. Within 30 minutes he was calm and I was no longer the white cunt. I had another patient who, this is a woman with two master's degrees. I walked into her room to do her morning check. And when I walked into her room, I immediately get stopped like a Mack truck hit me. The smell in the room was so pungent that my eyes started to water. She had finger painted her entire wall. And the paint she had used was the menses from her period. And she looks at me with this bright smile. She's so pleasantly psychotic. And she's like, isn't it beautiful? And I said, oh honey, it's something. Why don't you come with me? She comes with me covered in her own menses. We get her cleaned up. We get the room cleaned up. And I give her some crayons and a piece of paper. And I said, for the love of God, please use the crayons. <laughs> and she did. And we were good for the rest of the week. But what was amazing is that with her taking her medications and going to therapy, in two weeks, she was able to have a conversation again with somebody, a lucid one then she was able to be discharged and live her life. And that was thanks to psychiatric intervention. So to me, whenever anybody was out of their mind, to me, there was always a solution. I grew up in the church, but I grew up in a very progressive, liberal, love Jesus and your neighbor and be kind to everybody kind of church. The person who brought us to the church was my mother. She was this petite, spiritual, spunky woman, but she's also very grounded, very skeptical of things, and always told us growing up, always think for yourself and question everything. And so my mom one day sits me down. You know, I want to talk to you about something, and I just want you to know, never, ever play with a Ouija board. And I kind of like roll my eyes and I'm like, mom, it's a board game, please. She's like, please just don't do it. And of course I still did it with my friends and nothing like remarkable happened that I could think of. But it always stuck with me that my mom who was a skeptic would sit me down to specifically warn me, don't play with a Ouija board. And the church we grew up in never really talked about the devil or sinning or exorcisms. We didn't grow up Catholic. We grew up in this progressive church. So that was never part of my mentality growing up. My mom introducing Don't Play With a Ouija Board was probably the only exposure that I had. I kind of had this mentality of all of that was bullshit, essentially. And I remember being 16 and watching The Exorcist for the first time in my friend's basement after a basketball game. So we were sweaty, eating pizza, you know, being 16-year-old girls, joking around. And I went into watching this movie with the notion that this is a horror movie. Somebody made it up. And I didn't realize that there was any true story basis to this at the time.
4: Away! The sour's
10: mine! And I'm watching this, it was scary. Like this girl is like head spinning, she's pissing green shit and vomiting, and I'm like, god damn, that's she's a hot mess. And you know, thinking it's kind of ridiculous. So when it was over, like it was scary, but still, like, that's a ridiculous war movie.
4: The power of Christ compels you! That the power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you!
10: (laughs) After watching The Exorcist, I didn't really talk to too many people about possible exorcisms and demons and things like that until I was a nurse, and I was working in my psychiatric hospital in the Southwest, and my friend Bobby liked to talk to me about weird supernatural stuff, and he knew I didn't buy it. He really liked to push my buttons, and so one day he's like, yo, yo, Erica. I got this like a YouTube video. It's a Coast to Coast episode of uh, Father Malachi Martin and you should totally listen to it. He like uh, did some exorcisms and shit. And I'm like, I'll listen to it, but whatever, you know? It was like 10 p.m. toward the end of my shift. All my patients were medicated and asleep. So I had another like two hours to kill. And I'm like, you know what, maybe I'll listen to that YouTube video that Bobby recommended. So I'm in like this dark corner of this psych hospital, just me and my computer. I turn it on, I find the YouTube video. And it's a coast-to-coast episode with this Dr. Martin. So the guy's interviewing him, and at first I'm kind of like, yeah, 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 like devils and exorcisms, whatever. But then like, he starts talking about the process, and he talks about how the first thing that they do when somebody recommends this person go to see the priest is they have to be ruled out for medical conditions. And all of a sudden I can feel myself like getting closer to the computer, like my interest is piqued. Cause I'm like, that sounds very legitimate and reasonable that you would do that. Like very professional. So I'm listening him talk about this process. Then he goes on to say that most of his referrals came from psychiatrists. And that's when my throat dropped into my stomach. Psychiatrists to me always had the answer if somebody was out of their mind. So the fact that these psychiatrists are coming to this priest means they don't have an answer.
3: You must first of all satisfy yourself that there's nothing physical, no physical basis. Then uh, one or two expert psychiatrists, usually people who don't believe in God, by the way, Mm. because they're they're skeptical, must tackle you and find out, are you just plain loony or... Is there something they don't understand? They come back with a report saying, well, the pattern is normal, we can't explain it. Then the church authorities generally say, okay, let's try exorcism. And in the first 20 minutes, believe you me, everybody at an exorcism knows whether it's genuine or not. It's quite clear.
10: I am starting to get goosebumps. This is unfamiliar to me. And these are medically trained professionals just like me who are so desperate, so certain they can't help them, that they are seeking a priest of all things. My face is in front of the computer. Like, I am completely enthralled in this interview. And he gets to the part where he talks about what an actual exorcism is like.
3: Now, the temperature of the room may change. There may be a horrible smell. There may not be a horrible smell. All those are incidental things. But at a certain moment, if it's really an exorcism, Mm-hmm. And if we are in the presence of a possessing spirit, demon, everybody in the room, they know there's something in the room that wants you dead, but dead, dead, dead. And uh, it's a horrible feeling knowing that unless something happens, you are going to die now.
10: At this point, I am free to the fuck out. <laughs> so I flip the light switch on next to me and I'm like, okay, I think I've heard enough and turn it off. And at this point, there has been a screw that has been drilled into my psyche that maybe what you believed isn't the whole thing. Sometime later, I'm working as a day shift nurse in this psychiatric hospital. I come in for my morning shift at 7 a.m. And so the night shift nurse, he's giving me report on the patients that I have that day. But then he gets to the new admission we got the day before. And he's like, this is pretty disgusting. This girl killed her dog. She was home alone. Their 14-year-old little Shih Tzu named Bella was also at home with her, and she just went into this fit of rage and grabbed the dog by the hind legs and started smashing this dog into their wall. And there was blood scattered all over the place, and she finally hit it so hard the dog's neck snapped. The dad came home to find the limp dog's corpse on the floor and saw her sitting there crying next to the blood spatters all over the wall and he's like oh my god what happened and she's screaming crying I don't know I don't know I don't know what happened so he immediately picked up his daughter who's 24 and he brings her to our hospital not knowing what else to do she has no other psychiatric history which is very strange she was also had no history of drugs or substance abuse and her urine drug screen was clean. So I've had several patients before who have killed animals and there were a handful of scenarios. One, they were either in a full psychotic episode. Two, they were coming down off a serious drug trip. Or three, they were a complete sociopath. The thing that this night nurse was telling me was it's really strange because she's really with it. She's not hearing voices, she's completely engaged in conversation, completely normal. Which is very strange because patients who have been in a psychotic fit, who have killed their animals are still in a psychotic fit when they come into the hospital. And it takes at least a few days to a couple weeks for them to get out of it. The other thing was that she's very remorseful. She's been crying about this a lot, which if you're a sociopath, you are not regretful for what happened. So I'm looking at this chart and then it dawns on me and I have this feeling that I'm going into something unfamiliar. So I am nervous. And I assess my other patients first because I know what to do with them. But going into her room, I'm really nervous and I can feel my breath kind of shortening and my palms kind of sweaty because I don't know what to do with her. I walk into the room, she's completely lucid and crying. And I said, well, what happened? She said, I just got this huge wave of rage and felt out of control. And I don't remember the rest. And I just remember sitting there next to my dead dog. And I felt this intuition that I needed to ask her, something that's not in any hospital protocol. And I asked her, were you messing with something spiritually, something dark? that you shouldn't have been. And she pauses, and our eyes just bug out of her head. And then she looks down, and she said yes. She said, I'm from West Texas. Voodoo and black magic are huge out there, and I got involved with a group of friends that were very much into witchcraft and spells, and that was a few years ago, but ever since I've moved, I feel like something's been following me. And I feel like yesterday it finally got me. And I said, okay, I'm a medical professional and I want you to do everything your doctors are going to tell you to do. But I'm about to tell you something that I've never told any other patient. And I'm going to ask that you don't tell anybody that I told you this. But I highly recommend you see a spiritual advisor or get a spiritual healer because I don't think this is something medication is going to help with. And she's like, funny you mention that, because my parents have already called a priest. They know me, and they know I'm not a killer. And they know that I did the black magic. I said, "Okay, well, we're all on the same page. And I wish you the best of luck. Months later, I'm now working as an evening shift nurse. So I'm working 3 PM to 1130 PM. And I'm going in for my shift. And the day shift nurse is giving me a report. She's talking about how this woman is about 50 years old, she's Mexican, Spanish-speaking only. This is her 10th admission this year to a psychiatric hospital. She's a frequent flyer as we call them in the hospitals where she's just constantly in and out and in and out of psychiatric hospitals. She has been acting very erratically since she got in there. She's already peed all over a couple of the chairs. She's not really engaging in conversation. But how erratic she's behaving is making me a little uncomfortable. There's just something different about her. And I'm a little scared. But I go into her room and she had a single room. And as soon as I walk around the corner, I stop dead in my tracks. Her appearance is just terrifying. She has this long jet black hair that goes down to her hips, slouched over, looking up at me her hair is over her face but there's a part where i can see one eye and it's staring right through me her eyes are what i can only describe as hollow and sunken in with these deep deep dark circles her face is pretty much lifeless there was no emotion to her face whatsoever and i really have never seen anything like it I just let her know, hi, Maria, my name's Erica, and I'm going to be your nurse today. She doesn't respond. She doesn't even move. I can't pinpoint it, but something is different about her. Every time over the next two weeks, I go to give her her meds. The hair in the back of my neck stands up when I'm about to enter her room. She'll put her hand out to take the medication. She puts it in her mouth and swallows it won't say anything, and that's all I can report. But one night, something different happened. When I go to her room this time, there's a temperature change. This room is cold compared to the rest of the hospital. And this is a chill I haven't felt any other day. I'm scared because something is off. I feel that adrenaline explosion coming from my back going down my arms and my legs down to my fingertips and toes and i'm like this is not normal i've never felt like this around anybody i just see her in the dark corner of the room all i can see is her silhouette with the window behind her she's rocking back and forth and you can just hear the creaking of the chair she's in everything else is silent she doesn't look at me it's like i'm not even there She just keeps rocking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I keep going into the room, and it keeps getting colder and colder and colder. I have the translator phones because she can only speak Spanish. I talk into one end of the phone. There's a translator on the other line. She'll talk into the phone if she ever decides to speak, and they will translate what she says. And I hand her this phone, and she quickly grabs it. And I'm shaking a little bit as I put the translator phone up to my ear, and she just keeps rocking back and forth, back and forth. So I say, hey, Maria, it's time for your nine o'clock meds. And all the time, she looks at me like super quick, dead, cold stare into my eyes. Her pupils are dilated, and the dark circles are darker than they have been any other day. My stomach just drops, and I just feel these butterflies it's like a way nobody's ever looked at me before and it's like just searing right through me. I am paralyzed by this look she's giving me and I can't look away from her. And then she says something and I have never heard her voice. And I can't relate to what it was she said, but that this creaky dark man voice that was not appropriate for this petite Mexican woman. It didn't match up. So I finally break out of what I feel is like a spell and the translator doesn't repeat what she said. So I asked the translator, wait, what did she say? And he's like, uh, well, she says she wants your health and your soul. She then turns her head to the right and vomits without thinking. It just comes out from my throat. May the power of Christ compel you. And I turn around and sprint out of that room. And in front of the nurse's station, I stop and I do this little dance It makes no sense. I feel like I'm almost possessed myself and I am just like flailing my arms and legs and then I go, oh. And I'm sure the nurses in the nurse's station were looking at me like, what the fuck? But I was terrified and I had just experienced something dark. I don't remember the rest of that evening. I don't remember how she got her medications. And I don't remember who cleaned up the vomit, but it wasn't me. (laughs) But I just remember she never got better and medications didn't help her. But I knew in my gut that psychiatry wasn't gonna help her. I don't know what I believe now, but I do know my mom was right I will never touch a Ouija board ever again. And I no longer think the movie The Exorcist is ridiculous.
2: is all for this week's episode folks this of course is Santana behind me now and we just heard from Erica Stayherwald and before that a little something from Tom Waits now I've said it before and I'll say it again if you have a scary story that you would someday like to share on the show you can pitch us absolutely any time of year at the submissions page at risk-show.com you know what else you can find at risk is all of the tables of contents for all of the episodes. We list the storytellers, the songs, we give links of how to look up people's other work. There's actually even a search function there where if you can remember a key word about what the story is about or who the storyteller was, you can use the search function to look for stories on what episodes they might have occurred. Yet another reason to go to risk-show.com is that we list where our live shows are happening next. But you know what? I'm going to help you out with that right here and now. I'm going to list where our next live shows are happening. On November 3rd, we are in Baltimore. November 3rd, we're in Baltimore, Maryland at the Creative Alliance. On November 9th, we're in Chicago. We're back in Chicago on November 9th at Lincoln Hall. On November 10th, for the first time ever, we'll be in Madison, Wisconsin at the High Noon Saloon. So come on out, Madison, on November 10th. On November 11th, we're returning to Detroit at the Magic Bag. November 11th in Detroit, we're at the Magic Bag. On November 14th, we are back at Littlefield in Brooklyn. That's November 14th. At Littlefield in Brooklyn. And on November 18th, we're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. And on December 2nd, we are in Phoenix, Arizona for the first time ever. December 2nd, we're in Phoenix, Arizona for the first time ever at Valley Bar. We're still taking pitches for that show. And the theme is jaw dropping. So. Go to risk-show.com submissions to pitch us your jaw-dropping stories, anyone in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, remember to go to iTunes and leave a comment. You know, uh, give us a good five-star rating there. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, at Show. Be sure to check out our school where we teach storytelling and even do corporate workshops at thestorystudio.org. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
7: It's time for scares, it's time for screams It's Halloween, it's Halloween Halloween. The ghosts will spook, the spooks will scare Why, even Dracula will be there It's time for games, it's time for fun Not just for one, but for everyone The jack-o'-lanterns are all lit up And the dummies are made and stuff But just looking you will see It's that time of year again It's Halloween, it's Halloween. All the kids are happy and gay. There doesn't seem to be a cloud in their way. And when it's over and they've had all their fun, they'll wish that Halloween had just begun. Is goblins vampires devils frankensteins and zombies and there are champs cinderellas pirates angels and gypsies so let's have lots of fun and give many cheers For halloween comes from but once a year it's time for games it's time for fun not just for one but for everyone it's Halloween, it's Halloween, it's Halloween. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. It's Halloween.
4: It's Halloween. It's Halloween.
7: <laughing>